Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, today we are going to take a look at tuberculosis. I think the trigger for me was, at this time last year, I had a loved one who was in the internet, well, I think at least nationally famous, uh, Gaylord Rehabilitation Center down in Wallingford. And I was surprised to learn later that it was created initially to deal with tuberculosis. That was its original mission. It does so many different things at this point. It never occurred to me that it was ultimately a a TB sanatorium or something along those lines. We're going to tell you about that a little bit later in the show today. Uh, We're going to begin with kind of TB 101. And here to help us with that is actually somebody who's doing like TB 505, actually. And that would be Heron Darwin, professor in the Department of Microbiology at New York University's School of Medicine, uh, whose lab studies tuberculosis. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm going to ask you to explain a a provocative characterization you've used. Tuberculosis is the honey badger of pathogens. (laughs) Uh, So tell us how tuberculosis is the honey badger of pathogens. Well, I'm glad you caught on to that. So uh, tuberculosis, mycobacterium tuberculosis, is a bacterium that causes the disease tuberculosis. Um, And as most people, even non-scientists will know, is it usually affects your lungs. The reason why we refer to it as a honey badger is I think many people have seen this very infamous YouTube video of a honey badger that just doesn't care about what kind of other animals want to kill or eat it because it will always uh, bite back and win. And so um, we're interested, TB itself has just been incredibly resilient against treatments and vaccination, um, our, our immune systems. And so we're trying to understand why it's been such a successful pathogen over the millennia. Right. Now, another trick of TB is that uh, quite a bit uh, of the cases are dormant, right? I th- I've seen estimates one-third of the world uh, has a dormant case of, uh, of TB. Tell us about that. So that number's okay, so the, the, it's a very infamous number. One-third of the world is um, predicted to be latently infected with TB, and that number has more recently been challenged by several um uh, scientists and physicians who've looked at the literature, but nonetheless, it's a lot of people, even if it's not one third. One number that you can't argue about is the number of people who die from TB every year. It's one and a half to two million people um, every year, and and that's an incredibly big number. Um, for some reason, so we don't have an effective vaccine. There is a quote unquote vaccine out there that many people outside of the United States were given when they were born, but it's not very effective against um, the TB disease that we're very familiar with. Um, and so, so if you don't have a good vaccine, it's really hard to, to control an infection. The other problem is the antibiotics. Um, so it's a very slow growing bacterium. And um, if you are diagnosed with TB and you have to take antibiotics, you have to take them for a minimum of six months, during which time you cannot drink alcohol. Mm. And so you can imagine that's a challenge for uh, many people. <laughs> Right. Uh, this may explain why Eugene O'Neill wound up in Gaylord. But um, <laughs> but no, well, you know, let's talk about that vaccine. The vaccine's like 100 years old, right? And I mean, uh, not to make invidious comparisons, but I think Moderna scaled up its mRNA <laughs> vaccine, you know, around March or April the, uh, of 2020. They'd begun designing that, you know, th- this disease. Think about how fast those got to market. Is this, I, can, I mean, 
I, I would understand some disparity. That's pretty stark, though. We're still stuck with a with a hundred year old vaccine that mainly, as I understand it, is good with children, not so much with uh, older potential patients. Uh, exactly. Why why don't yeah. we have, so, why don't we have something better? What gives, right? So that's a great question, and that's what many labs around the world are trying to understand. So. So the, the major difference between COVID and, and TB is that SARS-CoV-2 is a virus and viruses are pretty effectively controlled by antibodies, um, which you can, which can be raised after you've been vaccinated. And so, I, I mean, I still think that the, the COVID vaccine has been an absolutely heroic effort. Um, it's It's been very unique and exciting to watch. And there are efforts for mRNAs to be used for TB, but right now there's, I don't think, I don't know of any example of it actually working. So the vaccine itself, the, the TB vaccine is not made from mycobacterium tuberculosis. It's made from a related organism that's been um, highly passaged through culture in the laboratory so that it's lost a lot of its deadly characteristics. Um, so the idea is, is that vaccine, as you say, it, it helps protect against something called miliary TB, which affects mostly children, but it's not super effective against pulmonary or the, the TB that affects your lungs and kills you by pneumonia. And so that's why in the United States, uh, we don't even bother giving it because it just isn't really worth it. Um, it just It's just not worth the effort and the hassle. And so, um, yeah, so I think that it, the million dollar question in my field is how come we can't get strong, robust, protective immunity uh, against this particular pathogen? Let's go back to this idea of a latent dormant because, uh, or how, whatever we want to call it, and, and let's not worry too much about what the number is. Let's say it's a billion. That's still a very big number. Um, I assume in a situation like that, what you're ta- really kind of talking about is a an infection that is held in check by the immune system. Presumably anything that depresses the immune system becomes very dangerous to somebody Absolutely. in that position. So you put HIV, yeah. HIV AIDS into sub-Saharan Africa or something like that, you're basically inviting a collaboration with tuberculosis. Exactly. So that's where, and that's where TB is, is really problematic. And that is in sub-Saharan Africa, where there is a lot of HIV co-infection. So HIV, which is also a virus, affects the part of your immune system that you really need to fight something like TB infection. And so it's kind of a perfect storm of, of you know, horrible infectious disease and horrible mortality. Um yeah. So, you know, the, so even though, you know, there's, this, you know, this idea of a third of the world being infected sounds really gloom and doomy, but most of those people will be fine and probably die of something else. But we do have to be concerned about those folks who do have HIV co-infection. The other thing is, is there are a lot of drugs that developed countries now use to suppress the immune system to treat things like, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease. And those immunosuppressants might allow people who have latent TB to then get a TB infection. So the numbers on that are sort of low, but you know, you might hear the, the warning, um, the warnings uh, on TV commercials that will, you know, advertise those types of drugs. So unlike a lot of other diseases, unlike SARS-CoV-2, the virus, um, this thing's been around, we'll talk, we're going to talk to our next guest a lot about this. This thing's been around four or 5,000 years, something like that. So I assume what there, what's happened is a kind of co-evolution, right? Our immune system develops maybe something to kind of push back against it. It mutates or evolves somehow uh, to maybe escape some of that protection that we develop. I mean, has it been sort of just a a tennis match over the millennia between us and it? I I think so. And I do think there's a lot of data to support that. And that's true about almost any infectious disease. Um, We're actually in my lab really interested in understanding. um, So what are the host factors? What, you know, what do humans do? So this pathogen TB only infects humans. So that's kind of an interesting aspect of this particular uh, bacterium. 
Um, and one of the things that um, I think is really interesting is that a lot of human mutations probably evolved and were selected for to deal with things like infectious disease. So very famously, you, you probably know about sickle cell anemia. It's a devastating disease. It affects people in Africa. But the reason why that mutation was selected for in a population is that it protected them from dying of malaria, right? And so um, everyone probably, you know, who's listening to this uh, knows some person has a friend who's of Asian descent um, and cannot drink alcohol. Right. And they have a specific mutation that affects their ability to metabolize something called an aldehyde. And so that that gene is not there for you to drink alcohol, but rather to to detoxify these aldehydes because aldehydes are not great for you to accumulate in your body. But these folks who have this mutation who accumulate these aldehydes, we hypothesize my colleagues at UC Berkeley, both Russell Vance and Sarah Stanley and I, we hypothesize that this mutation may have evolved to protect against tuberculosis disease. But in the meantime, you know, this was thousands of years ago when that mutation evolved in Asia, the bacteria have also evolved and may have become more infectious or resist whatever um, aldehydes are produced in the host. And so we're really interested in this kind of, it's like you're saying a tennis match, right? There's a bit of a, a it's like a tug of war and it's very slow with TB because it is just a very slow pathogen. But we do think there has been this kind of, you know, tit for tat going on over the millennia. So it's a disease also kind of affected by and exacerbated by uh, problems with various kinds of living conditions, sanitation, stuff like that. So I assume anything disruptive, a war, a refugee crisis, maybe even a pandemic like COVID is not good news that it's going to fan the flames. It's going to put, put people together. Uh, yeah. so talk I about think that. those are really excellent points. And Aperva Amanda Billy uh, at the New York Times actually wrote this incredibly uh, insightful article in 2020 about how the pandemic, the, the COVID pandemic has really negatively affected uh, TB patients because people won't leave their homes to go get their medications or to be seen by doctors. And so you're absolutely right. Things like war and pandemics and other supply chain issues will affect the outcome of people who have TB. So I don't know. Just last question here. Um, five years from now, are we going to be having a different? I know, for example, there are vaccines in development. There are stage two, stage three trials. Uh, I'm sure there are therapeutics coming online all the time. Is this conversation going to be different in five years? Ooh, I, I, I hope so. I, I am not optimistic that we'll have something really dramatic within the next five years, but I'm hoping within my lifetime or within the next 20 to 30 years, we'll have uh, much better treatments. The TB Alliance, which is based in New York City, actually has really been pushing uh, forward the idea of mixing different drug cocktails to shorten the treatment, and that can be a huge game changer. So I think people, we just have to get more creative about um, how we administer the drugs and also understanding how the immune system and how the bacteria deal with uh, fighting infection, uh, fighting the host during infections. And maybe we can come up with new ways to bolster our own immune response against the bacteria. Right. We're way smarter than the bacterium. So that's that's the good news. All right. <laughs> I hope so, but not always. <laughs> not always. Well, it's a honey badger. Honey badgers, aren't, okay. honey badgers are not smart. They're persistent. Uh, all right. Heron, Heron Darwin <laughs> is a perfect. professor in the Department of Microbiology at New York University School of Medicine, uh, whose lab studies tuberculosis. I just pressed the wrong button on this uh, fa fascinating machine. So we're going to shift a little bit here. And, you know, I had several... I don't know, Apersus this morning, just thinking about this show. And, and one of them is just how long this thing has been around, so much so that 
So try to wrap your mind around this. Okay, well, first of all, I'll do the later one. One of the members of Creedence Clearwater Revival, Tom Fogarty, uh, died in, I believe, 1999 of tuberculosis. Um, Pocahontas died of tuberculosis. And we're really, in some ways, just kind of getting started there uh, in the sense that, you know, we could go back even further. But just imagine somebody in Creedence Clearwater Revival and Pocahontas died of the same disease. Uh, That's how persistent this thing is. Maybe it was 1990 that he died. But anyway, um, here to give us more of a sense of that sweep is Kyle Harper, chair in the history of liberty, a professor of classics and letters at the University of Oklahoma and the author of Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History, among other books. So, Kyle Harper, maybe we could just begin by having you point uh, out the way in which TB is a little bit more typical of the way people used to die. We don't think of people dying, COVID notwithstanding. We don't think of people dying of infectious disease as much as they used to. Exactly. We're, we're very lucky to live on the other side of a great transition where biomedicine and public health completely changed the way that, that human beings live and die. And it's really only been three, four, five generations. And it's still a, a revolution that's very much not complete globally. But in the for most of the human past most people most of the time died because some germ a bacterium or a virus got inside their body and and killed them and tuberculosis was certainly one of the most consequential germs in the human past yeah you've got kind of a sort of a hit parade that's the right word of the most important infectious diseases in the world this is top five right undoubtedly top five there's there's probably four five six that can make a strong case malaria plague uh influenza smallpox but for my money, if I had to, to say, I would guess that tuberculosis has probably killed more humans than any other microbe. And we certainly know that in the, the 19th century, it was the greatest killer. And it was kind of the, the last great challenge in major improvements in human health was finding ways to corral this really powerful microbe. Right. And we're going to talk about some of those ways as we go along here on, on the show. But yeah, it almost seems as though I had this sort of weird thought this morning that if you took all the people in history who died of tuberculosis and re- and and had them not die and replaced them with an, uh, an equal number who do, who who never got tuberculosis you'd have almost a completely different story of the human race if you think of some of the people who did die maybe we can get to that some of the really important people who did die it was just so prevalent and also and one, one thing that marks it out a little bit from some of the other diseases that you mentioned it's something that you could have for a long time right it was more of a chronic wasting infection than this thing that took you out in 2 weeks Exactly. Until until the 19th century, it was most commonly known as consumption because it would get inside the victim's body and and just grind away from the inside out. Most of the the really notorious diseases that I listed, like plague and smallpox, were we, we could say they were explosive. They would cause massive sudden outbreaks, epidemics, pandemics that would sweep across cities, countries, the globe and kill and make sick massive numbers of people. In, in great bursts. But tuberculosis is really kind of different. There, it, it starts with the biology of the, the disease. There's only a handful of diseases that are really good at causing latent and chronic infection. That's because our immune systems are really good. Usually, you know, if you get a small box, uh, which we're not going to get, but if you did, it was, it was going to be a fight and uh, then it was going to be over one way or the other. Uh, it can't hide inside you, but tuberculosis can. That's what makes it what it is. It gets inside a certain kind of immune cell 
and it, it lurks, it hides, it can remain latent for a very long period of time. And even if it's causing active disease, the course of the sickness and uh, the experience of the patient can just go on and on. And it's an excruciating, tragic disease for that reason. But it's also different from, from plague or smallpox or flu. And the, the patient has a prolonged battle uh, in front of them with this horrific disease. And it kind of becomes, in some cases, part of people's identity for a while, you know. So if you're Chopin and you've got tuberculosis, you've got tuberculosis for a while. I think pericarditis finally did him in. But but yeah, it's almost something that sort of becomes a part of who the person is if they have it for a really long time. And speaking of a long time, Kyle, the other long time is how long this damn thing has been around, right? We now can at least kind of try to do dating from microbes. How old is tuberculosis? Well, this is this is one of the really interesting things for those of us who do the history of infectious disease. It used to be a, a guessing game. People would cite, uh, you know, the evidence of a, an Egyptian mummy or a, an ancient Chinese medical text, which always means they were they were really just guessing about how old a, a germ was. But because of the revolution in our ability to to sequence DNA. We now have a, a huge amount of new information about the, the family tree of the bacteria and viruses that, that cause human sickness. And so for a long time, it was thought that tuberculosis was a disease that had maybe been with us for as long as we had been us, homo sapiens. But it really turns out that that's not the case. So it depends a little on your perspective. It's about four or 5,000 years old, according to the latest thinking, which isn't that old. Uh, it sounds old if you're if you're thinking in short modern timeframes, but it puts the the birth of this disease in the the stream of human history when humans are you know founding the bronze age and building great cities and empires, tuberculosis becomes a part of the the human story. But for the last 4000 years or so, it has been an important part of the human story. It's really been an integral part of the the experience of health and and life and death for humans for 4000 years. So it does have quite a track record. And for much of that time, we should imagine that it was one of the most important diseases in a, in a very crowded disease pool. And, and not to I get, be too slick about this, but yeah, since we're talking in long terms, so the invention of agriculture, uh, the human beings living in settlements, that's like what, maybe 12,000 years old, something like that. And so you just kind of tickled an idea about why tuberculosis became what it was when we were living in relatively small and dispersed settlements we were probably less likely to spread this disease, right? This is a disease of kind of a lot of people living pretty close together. That's right. I mean, almost any infectious disease is going to thrive whenever and wherever human beings are living close together. It's going to help the the germ get from one human host to the next. And so cities and population growth have always kind of played into the hands of our germs. But tuberculosis in particular, it's a respiratory disease. So it's got to get from the respiratory tract of one patient to the next. And it's a little different from a disease like COVID-19, which is a respiratory virus that's very, very contagious. I mean, the, now the Omicron uh, variant's transmissibility is just almost off the charts. You know, it takes so little to move from one patient to the next. TB is, is a big old bacterium. It's got to deal with gravity and trying to get from one person's lungs to the next. And so it has always really thrived whenever people are very, very densely packed and close together. So pre-modern cities with huge, poor populations living on top of each other in tenements and in squalid conditions, 
has always really played into the to the hands of tuberculosis. From the bacterium's perspective, it wants us to be as close as possible, sharing air without ventilation, coughing and breathing in the, the germ. Yeah. And, and one of the ironies of this is, yes, so if you're poor, if you're living in crowded conditions with bad water, unclean food, just poor sanitation in general, you're a sitting duck for this disease. But it is also kind of an equal opportunity killer. When you just run through George Orwell, Vivian Lee, Dred Scott, Kafka, Schrodinger, Keats, Thoreau, two of the Brontes, Chekhov, D.H. Lawrence, Louis Braille, Catherine Mansfield, Khalil Gibran, Doc Holliday. I mean, it's kind of, it preys on the poor, but it also, and, and lots of monarchs, like more monarchs than we could possibly name or sort of sub-monarchs or something. I mean, it really could take out almost anybody. Yeah. I mean, that list is is really mind-blowing, isn't it? But you you put your finger on it by by saying it's both. It is really like almost any infectious disease, it can affect anyone. And it's one of the reasons why health is public health, why when it comes to infectious disease, we're always to some extent in it together, both locally and globally. And tuberculosis, the roster of, of the rich and famous that, that this disease has carried off is a reminder that wherever infectious diseases circulate, that it's a risk to anyone, no matter what their their circumstance, social wealth, privilege, or so on. But at the same time, as you also said, tuberculosis is a disease that has has and still does very disproportionately fall heaviest on the poor. And the reasons for that are both because it's easier to transmit when people are living in really dense, poorly ventilated tenements, but it's also because the TB bacterium takes advantage of bodies that are that are poorly nourished or highly stressed. So TB throughout the past was both. It was a disease that could affect anyone, but it was also a disease that got really tangled up with poverty and with with social stratification. So it's it's always been an infectious disease that disproportionately affects the poor. And that was certainly the case in the 19th century when and keep in mind that we think that tuberculosis in much of the 19th century, Western Europe and the United States killed as many as a quarter to a third of all deaths. So it's its toll is just almost unfathomable at times. And so it's not surprising that so many people who, whose names we know succumb to it. But we also need to remember there are a lot of people whose names aren't remembered by history who, who suffered and died because of this affliction. So another thing that's happening in the 19th century, Kyle, is the development of germ theory. And in a way, it's fitting, I think, that a disease that's been sticking around for four or 5,000 years would be also a disease that we kind of study uh, over the course of that real time. Uh, and there were theories that it was somehow an inheritable condition. I'm sure it was part of miasma theory. But really, you know, if we think that real germ theory starts with Louis Pasteur around the middle of the 19th century, maybe the next big figure is this guy. Guy Robert Koch. Tell us about him. He's sort of maybe the other tower in the early stages of bacteriology. Exactly. There had there had been what you might say is people mostly on the fringe who who had intuitions that maybe there were these tiny little things that that were alive that caused disease. But it's in the middle of the the 19th century when it becomes mainstream. And the two figures you mentioned are probably the most instrumental of all: Louis Pasteur in France, and then. Uh, ultimately became his rival in Germany, Robert Koch, who started as a, a country doctor, but was just a tremendous 
laboratory scientist. He really, in many ways, kind of forges what we think of as the, the modern scientific laboratory. And he's the first one to see it. And th this is real watershed because Pasteur had been able to prove that microbes existed and caused disease, uh, but it's the, the rise of powerful microscopes. And then particularly, it's around 1882 that Robert Cook looks through a microscope and sees the tuberculosis bacterium. And that was a, a kind of a, a revolution that it's it's hard for us to imagine because we now know that that there are these tiny little invisible things, bacteria and viruses. But this was such a, a mental revolution that it's kind of hard for us to go back and to, to realize what a big deal it was, not just to have germ theory, but specifically to know that tuberculosis, this scourge that so many people suffered from and lost loved ones to. It was just a burden on societies that's hard to, to wrap your mind around. He saw it, and that was a breakthrough. All right, Kyle Harper, we have to stop here, although I could talk to you for a long time about this stuff. Kyle Harper is a chair of, in the History of Liberty, a professor of classics and letters at the University of Oklahoma, and the author of Plagues Upon the Earth, Diseases and the Course of Human History, among other books. Thank you for doing this today. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of what Kyle said, how it kind of plays out into things like, well, for example, architecture, uh, and how do you build facilities where you can treat people who have this disease becomes a very powerful question over the centuries. After this. Got me worried so I can't even sleep at night. I've got the tea, tea. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. As I said before, one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to do this show was that I spent some time visiting my partner actually last year at Gaylord in Wallingford. Uh, and I had not known at the time, but then recently discovered that 120 years ago or so, uh, Gaylord was founded uh, by the New Haven County Anti-Tuberculosis Society, uh, which bought land from the family of Moses Gaylord, uh, a farmer in Wallingford, and started the Gaylord Farm Sanator Sanitarium, Sanatorium on a 600-acre piece of land. Um, 
And it just got me thinking. It got me thinking about all of the places that probably existed over the years to do similar things, to accomplish similar missions. So we're going to talk about that in this segment uh, with Beatriz Colomina, a professor of the history of architecture uh, in the School of Architecture at Princeton University and author of X-Ray Architecture, among other books. And Tara Knapp is vice president of external affairs at Gaylord Specialty Healthcare, a nonprofit rehabilitation-based healthcare system here in Connecticut. So Tara, I'm going to have you get going. So um, I, as I say, spent a bunch of time uh, at Gaylord, but I bet it looks a lot different from what it looked like 120 years ago. What what was the sanatorium at that time? What did it look like? What did it do? Yeah. Hi, hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on. And um, thank you for all the kind words that you've said so far about Gaylord. It looked very different. We have a picture. I have a picture in my office of the road to Gaylord, which is literally a cow path. Um, it, this was a, um, it was a working farm. The family hadn't been doing a lot with it, but, um, you know, the New Haven Anti-Tuberculosis Association, which was comprised of doctors and professors and judges and reverends, you know, they were compelled to try and address what they were seeing in the area. And to set the stage in 1902, when we were founded, um, in New Haven, the city of New Haven alone, they were averaging one death per day from tuberculosis. And they knew that a sanatorium needed to be created and this group wanted to do that. And the choice of this farm on a hill was perfect in relation to the cure for the day. And the cure at the time was really quite simple, fresh air, good food and exercise. So being up here on the hill and um, uh, you just heard Kyle talk about getting away from tenements and densely populated areas, they, all this land allowed for patients to have fresh air, to be separated, um, for them to have good food. It was a working farm. So we already had cows and poultry and um, we had crops and it was self-sufficient. The, um, uh, the land was soon populated within the first two years with administration buildings, but most importantly, tents and cottages because our patients slept outdoors on the, um, uh, the outdoor um, patios of the cottages all year long, even in the even in the winter when snow would come in through the slats. Mm. And that was in order to have the fresh air coming through and addressing the fact that this is a respiratory disease and so contagious. All right, Tara, um, Tara hold that next thought. I just want to transition back over to Beatrice Colomina. Um, so, Beatrice, I assume nothing that you're hearing is particularly surprising. You've looked at this all over the world, right? This is what architecture did to react to this disease. But T- tell us a little bit more. Tell us about how buildings changed because of tuberculosis. Yes, thank you very much for, for having me. I mean, of course, it's, uh, it's very important to see how modern architecture, which came to the United States, for example, in big exhibitions like the International Style in the Museum of Modern Art, was not simply a, a style. It was not simply a modern way of, of doing things, employing new materials like glass or reinforced concrete, etc., but it was really a response to, to tuberculosis, which was really a trauma for that generation in which so many people all over the world were dying of, uh, of tuberculosis. And architects were taking this very seriously. And this is very interesting because there were uh, active collaborations between doctors and architects on how to create uh, these new spaces of the sanatorium. 
And as the previous uh, uh, guest mentioned, the tuberculous bacillus, which is actually why consumption became tuberculosis until the uh, Koch didn't identify the, the bacillus, the name was consumption, then it became tuberculosis. Despite the fact that the tuberculous bacillus existed, they couldn't find a cure about it. No antibiotic was effective. They tried everything. They tried vaccines, etc. So the only cure was environmental, was to remove uh, people from the uh, places where uh, this disease was thriving, the big cities, the concentrated uh, uh, spaces, and removing to places like um, uh, like Davos. Davos in Switzerland was uh, uh, the most famous place. Davos that is now so famous as being the economic center of of all these places, right? Uh, it was the center of tuberculosis, and um, it was uh, catering to to very rich people. There was these fantastic sanatoriums. Uh, that became the site of the Thomas Mann uh, famous uh, uh, novel, mm. The Magic Mountain, because his wife, Katia Mann, uh, who also came with him to the United States uh, after the, the war, uh, or during the war, actually, was um, uh, had suffered from tuberculosis and spent like four years in, in, in sanatoriums in, 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 in Davos. And everything that was put in place by these architects and these doctors at the turn of the century, these sanatorios with big terraces where the patients uh, were um, spending a lot of time in the open air, in the fresh air, etc., then they become fixtures of modern architecture. So what had been um, basically a prescription to uh, uh, somehow uh, cure tuberculosis became what modern architecture is, white walls, terraces, big windows, uh, etc., eliminating all these curtains and all these carpets because it was believed, and it's true, that the bacillus of tuberculosis was hiding in the dust. So you have to eliminate everything that will that will accumulate that. So from there, the modern furniture, which is very streamlined, that doesn't have any place where the dust can hide, etc. Et so we start living without suffering from tuberculosis in buildings that will prevent uh, uh, tuberculosis, eh? and and that is, I think, very interesting movement from uh, the architecture of the sanatorium for the sick person to modern architecture, which is still the most prevalent architecture all over uh, uh, the world. Uh, that was actually designed to uh, prevent, if not to cure tuberculosis. You know, I don't want to open a can of worms here because this is complicated and we're short on time, but it does, I'm sure you think about this, that we've learned a lot lately from COVID about the necessity of ventilation, that our buildings are probably too tight, uh, that the air exchanges aren't happening fast enough, uh, that that's one of the ways you make a building safe. I'm guessing that you know, a conversation we might have 25 years from now might say that architecture looks different after COVID. Yes, I think it will look different. It's already starting to look different. Uh, the interesting thing about COVID is that it made clear how many of the features of modern architecture were actually very desirable in COVID time. At the time in which we were, we were confined in our homes, obviously, uh, someone who had a terrace was in a very big, in a very uh, desirable uh, uh, position. But uh, the interesting thing too is that it's different because uh, uh, tuberculosis was understood to be a home problem. All the doctors talk that tuberculosis is a house problem. And housewives were actually asked to have petri dishes in their living room, rooms <laughs> to make sure they have actually cleaned properly. So it was not that it looks clean, that you have to 
actually verify that you have eliminated the bacteria. This is in, 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 in many um, uh, uh, journals and, and magazines addressing to, to housewives. So the housewife becomes like a bacteriologist. Wow, house that to is be As clean as a laboratory. <laughs> and during COVID, the danger was not in the home. The danger was presumably outside, in the public, in, in the subway, if you live in a big city, in big spaces. And we were asked to um, uh, stay home uh, to prevent uh, uh, the contagion. But right. of course, a lot of other things happen, right? right. Uh, uh, we start realizing that these open plans of the modern house maybe didn't work out. You have two kids <laughs> at home doing homework and now uh, uh, two people are working at home or whatever the the, the arrangement of the household uh, is. You need more um, uh, specific spaces in which you you so a lot of renovation has right. happened during you've, COVID. You've got to be able to yeah, you've got to be able to isolate. All right, I, I you need have to... to be able to isolate. Yeah. So you know, there's been a lot of uh, uh, of uh, business for people that do renovations <laughs> and, and 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 so because and, people uh-huh. have had to. to to upgrade their interiors. We will no doubt see more of that. So, Tara, you know, yes. obviously a, a lot of what happens uh, happens uh, to benefit upper and middle class people in situations like this. But one of the things that was happening when Gaylord was a sanatorium, uh, people were coming in, they had no insurance, they often yeah. had lost their jobs because they had to go to a sanatorium. One thing that was done, uh, oddly enough, was the creation of a, sort of a silver shop on the premises. Yes, absolutely. And before I talk about the silver shop, one of the things I wanted to say about what Beatrice was saying is that COVID has also started to change the way hospitals are designed. Gaylord has always had private rooms, but now everybody is trying to have private rooms in hospitals because again, you know, by mm-hmm. being with a roommate, it's not good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, here at Gaylord, you're right. At the beginning of the century, a lot of people, they don't have insurance. And if they didn't work, they didn't earn a wage. And mm-hmm. um, Gaylord always looked at the whole person and how was that family dynamic? How was that person going to live their life? And they partnered with Wallace Silver um Smiths and International Silver, and they created Silvercraft here, which is really among the first occupational therapy, so to speak, um, for patients. And it did several things. One, it kept people busy, right? But it also allowed them to learn a trade. And that was important um, while they were here for many, many months. And rather than have Gaylord earn any money from the development of teaspoons and jewelry and um, money clips. When the silver pieces were sold, the money went back to the actual patient. And the patient was then able to pay their bill or send the money home. If you're the husband, your wife doesn't have a job at home and they're relying on the kindness of strangers to help with food or to pay their bills. And if you're the mother, then you know the husband's having trouble caring for his family while he's at work. So being able to have an occupation and it also allowed people to transition to a new vocation if they can't return to their existing one. As you know, consumption just it could be a chronic disease. And so you might not be able to go back and be a laborer or a physical worker because you don't have the strength and you don't have the pulmonary strength. But being able to work in a factory setting like at Wallace or International and have a trade and be able to provide for your family once you became healthy 
was a was a win for everyone, for the family, for people, and for society. Right. So um, one guy wasn't maybe working on solar so much. His name was Eugene O'Neill. He was starting <laughs> to he was starting to write plays while he was trying to get over uh, TB uh, at Gaylord. I want to thank uh, Tara Knapp, Vice President of External Affairs at Gaylord Specialty Healthcare, and uh, Beatriz Colomina, Professor of the History of Architecture in the School of Architecture at Princeton University, and the author of X-ray Architecture, among other books. All right, we're going to talk about ideas of beauty and spirituality and how they begin to coincide with or maybe congrue with tuberculosis. Got to go fast because we're covering 5,000 years of a disease in 47 minutes. So uh, thanks to Kat Pastor, our technical producer. Thanks to Lily Tyson, our senior producer and the producer of this particular episode. We're going to spend the final um, part of this talking about the way people begin to think about, I don't know, even just life uh, and beauty and art uh, differently as a result of tuberculosis, particularly during one of its phases. With us, Carolyn Day, Associate Professor of History at Furman University, the author of Consumptive Chic, A History of Beauty, Fashion, and Disease. Elizabeth Lee is an Associate Professor of Art History at Dickinson College, author of The Medicine of Art, Disease, and the Aesthetic Object in the Gilded Age. No, I'm sorry, in Gilded Age America. Um, So, Elizabeth, I'm going to have you get us started here. Um, During the 19th century, there was this sort of romanticization of tuberculosis. It's hard to imagine why that would happen or how that would happen when it was killing so many people and making so many other people sick and miserable and frightened. But there was this sense, particularly maybe because it struck down, as we said earlier, so many significant artists, so many significant creative people, that maybe it even had something to do with creativity. Exactly. And thank you, Colin, so much for having me on the show today. Uh, There's so many fascinating points to pick up on, and I want to address exactly what you just asked. Uh, One one thing when you were giving your long list of all the people who died from it, it tended to be a disease unlike cancer, for instance, which tends to strike people later in life, tended to be a disease that struck people in the primacy of their of their lives. And whether they were, you know, working class people living in slums or um, in tenements or, you know, artists like Chopin and and uh, on down, um, there was a sense that people sort of were struck by this illness at the height of their creative powers. And there was a way in which it almost seemed to sort of make them more creative. They were struggling, you know, they were fighting against life. They were fighting, you know, uh, that, that sense of inner turmoil seemed to sort of stoke the fires of creativity. I've written quite a bit about Robert Louis Stevenson in particular and his biographers, um, who actually, by the way, never was officially diagnosed with tuberculosis, um, but he spent his life sort of wearing it almost as a badge. It kind of went with his bohemian bohemian, uh, artistic um, reputation. It was part of his eccentricity. Um, And he went to Davos and the doctors there said, I don't think you actually have TB. There was something wrong with your lungs, but um, he sort of of wore it and played it and performed it. Um, And you know, he he was was very much discussed at the time as someone whose creativity was 
enabled by this illness. And there were scenes of him in bed, you know, choking and writing and smoking and doing all of these things he shouldn't be doing, but uh, almost as if it was impossible to take his creativity and his, his talent away from the fact that he seemed to be permanently ill. Right. So, Carolyn, uh, you know, into all this, we can add yet another thing, which is sort of this strange idea of beauty, not a complete departure from the latent existing idea of beauty, uh, pale, thin, smooth hair, pink cheeks, pink cheeks, cheeks, I can't say cheeks. Uh, I mean, some of the things that you have with tuberculosis maybe go hand in hand with what people thought was beautiful anyway. But once again, there was this strange romanticization of the disease, right? There absolutely was. And to pick up on what Elizabeth was saying, one of the things that's quite interesting at the end of the 18th century and into the early part of the 19th century, the disease is really bound up with creative male genius. It's gendered. And so there's an idea that uh, it actually enhances um, it or is a sign of and can enhance creativity and, and intellectual prowess. And so we see that when we see the representations of people like Keats, for instance, um, and that these artists would sort of burn very brightly and then burn out very quickly. And that works very well as a hallmark for men, but it doesn't necessarily work as a hallmark for women. And so one of the ways in which um, tuberculosis was sort of uh, codified in women in this same period is that it is associated with female beauty. And so it, it has a lot to do with the actual understandings of the disease of the late part of the 18th century and the early part of the 19th century. There's a split along class lines, as we've mentioned, or several people have mentioned that the disease, it does not respect class and it doesn't respect gender. And so it required rationalization and meaning. How do you explain that these wealthy women or your, the sort of how do you put meaning on the death of your daughter um, who you have to watch sort of waste away quite slowly? And so um, physicians actually participated in this beauty rhetoric and beauty dynamic. They saw it as a diagnostic marker for a predisposition to the disease. So they thought you didn't inherit the illness, but you inherited a predisposition, one that you could identify by the physical markers that we would now understand as being the symptoms of a latent tuberculosis or TB in its early stages. So, so Ka Carolyn, there's another piece of this too, and that's rel rel religiosity, spirituality, this notion that maybe you're kind of spiritually elevated, maybe you're mm -hmm. already 40% angel or something if you have this. Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, one of the things that we begin to see is um, in particularly physiologists um, during this period begin to, and not just begin, but continue to push this idea that the exterior is a true representation of the interior qualities, particularly of women. So the more beautiful a woman was, the more um, good or genuine she was seen to be. And if you think about something like tuberculosis, which at the time gave you an external beauty based on an internal inherent constitution, you can see that why physicians are even participating in this rhetoric. There are, are lectures on TV that are being given in the mid part of the century that say that the artists and the poets may have it right, that they are too good and beautiful to live. And so there's very much this connection between beauty and character at least up until the mid part of the century with women. That gets muddled in the middle part of the century and shifts toward the end of the 19th century. All right, so Elizabeth, there's also this kind of feedback loop that starts to happen, I think. You know, there's uh, what what's a beautiful person? Maybe a beautiful person is somebody who looks kind of tubercular. Uh, and so, well, 
How are we going to paint Ophelia? We'll paint Ophelia. We'll, we'll base her on a consumptive model, Elizabeth Siddall, I think her name was. Tell us a little bit more about that, about the way in which beauty then became kind of committed to canvas in that way. Right. And that, that really is an interesting feature. Um, and one of the things I love most about what's happening in this really rich period of the late 19th century is that while, you know, Coke, as, as we've been hearing, was identifying the you know, particular bacterium under the microscope. We understand what's happening scientifically. Artists sort of lived on in a kind of parallel world because, you know, medical science didn't necessarily give a lot of meaning to this disease. It didn't sort of like reinsert it in the narrative of life. It just gave you cold facts about what was, you know, going on at a at a level of, of germs. So these um, narratives tend to be perpetuated and they tend to, to sort of live on um, in this, this idea that, you know, um, on canvas, at least, that artists can sort of make sense of this illness. As we've also been hearing, you know, we're still trying to, to figure out TB. We're still trying to come up, you know, with, with a, a surefire cure. Um, and streptomyosin, the earliest antibiotic, doesn't even come onto the scene until the, until the 1940s, which is precisely why people are retreating to the sanatoria and trying to just find environments which will, you know, sort of uh, support their health. Um, but, it, but in the absence of that, we can at least, or alongside that, we can at least sort of idealized beauty and idealized these sort of types because medical science, I mentioned the example of Stevenson, again, as, as often as he was checked by these doctors from Edward Livingston Trudeau in the Adirondacks to Carl Rudy at Davos, they all said, you know, we don't think you have tuberculosis, but no one doubted he had the tubercular look. He looked consumptive. And in a day when the sort of diagnostic tools were sort of basic, it was about thumping your chest and looking for signs of blood in your cough, um, it was hard to get a precise reading. So having the right look was in itself uh, a basis for claiming to be tubercular, right? Um, you didn't actually have to have the medical backing because that didn't carry a lot of weight and wasn't very effective at this point. Right. If we had longer, there might be an interesting conversation about whether there's an unbroken line from there to, say, Kate Moss, uh, whether our current notions of beauty might have been informed somewhat by that. But we're out of time. Carolyn Day is the author of Consumptive Chic, A History of Beauty, Fashion, and Disease. Elizabeth Lee uh, is the author of The Medicine of Art, Disease, and the Aesthetic Object in the Gilded Age, in Gilded Age America. I don't know why I keep putting a V in there. We are going to say goodbye, but thank you very much for listening. And Here's yet another song about tuberculosis.